You're listening to ReachMD. This episode of Living Room, titled Addressing Diagnostic Challenges in Sjogren's Disease, is sponsored by Novartis U.S. Clinical Development and Medical Affairs. The host and speaker have been compensated for their time. This program is intended for healthcare professionals. Here's your host, Dr. Ethan Craig. Sjogren's disease can be challenging to diagnose, with its presentation ranging from typical sicko symptoms and absent significant systemic manifestations to patients with life-threatening systemic disease without clinically apparent sicko symptoms. So here we're going to review some of the most common diagnostic challenges that may come up in clinical practice. This is ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Ethan Craig. Joining me to discuss how we can address some of these obstacles to diagnosing Sjogren's disease is Dr. Sarah McCoy. Dr. McCoy is an associate professor of rheumatology at the University of Wisconsin. She also runs the Sjogren's Clinic at the University of Wisconsin and serves on the board of directors for the Sjogren's Foundation. Dr. McCoy, thanks for being here today. Hey, thanks for having me. My pleasure. So let's dive right in. Dr. McCoy, in clinical practice, what's the most common presentation we're seeing of Sjogren's disease and what manifestations typically bring a patient to a rheumatologist's office as opposed to elsewhere? So a large proportion of the U.S. population and, in general, populations experience dryness at some point in their life, at least a third do. And only a small number of those patients actually have Sjogren's disease. So how do we sort out, right, when these patients who are dry, which is one of the very typical presenting features of Sjogren's disease, have Sjogren's disease? So features that help sort out... When a Sjogren's disease patient is at our doorstep, as opposed to somebody who has dryness from another cause, include the severity and chronicity of the dryness associated with disease. And it's also helpful to evaluate for other comorbidities and medications that can mimic Sjogren's disease. And that includes things like hepatitis C or medications that can cause dryness, such as some antidepressants or diuretics. So other less specific symptoms that can bring Sjogren's patients to rheumatologists include things like fatigue and pain, including myalgias and arthralgias. Specific organ involvement tends to be less common as an initial presenting feature of a Sjogren's patient seeking rheumatology care for the first time. So just to help us get a little better scope of Sjogren's disease, how do primary and secondary Sjogren's disease differ? And do you see any ongoing use to this terminology in medical practice? This is an evolving topic. And actually, we just at the International Sjogren's Symposium just a few weeks ago, this was a major point of discussion. So I think it's pretty salient to discuss it. So right now, the term secondary Sjogren's disease is falling out of favor. And it used to indicate Sjogren's disease in the presence of another autoimmune disease. And essentially, the Sjogren's community came together and they said, well, why are we secondary? I have concomitant lupus or concomitant RA, but it's really my pain, fatigue, dryness that's bothering me. And I don't think those symptoms should be secondary. And so right now, there's a movement to use the term either associated Sjogren's disease or overlap Sjogren's disease. So you might say, for example, lupus associated with Sjogren's disease or lupus overlap with Sjogren's disease. Can you speak to the role in diagnosis of autoantibodies, including the ANA, SSA, SSB, and then any others in Sjogren's disease that you feel are helpful for diagnosis? Yeah, so I'll speak about some of the common associations and some of the newer things we've discovered. So Rho-SSA are the prototypical sort of common Sjogren's disease diagnostic autoantibodies, but 
being that it is a, a B cell associated disease, there are other autoantibodies that are implicated in both the pathogenesis and have interesting diagnostic implications. So one example is the anti-centromere antibody. And when this is present, it's associated with lower rates of anti-SSA antibody, rheumatoid factor, and hypergammaglobulinemia. But folks who have an anti-centromere antibody positive tend to have higher lymphocytic infiltrate. They also have greater glandular dysfunction, and this includes things like lower tear and salivary flow. And this was actually described by Dr. Baer, who happens to be a mentor of mine and is an expert in Sjogren's disease as well. Another really interesting phenomenon is what we do now with SSB or law in isolation, right? So in our previous diagnostic criteria, either SSA or SSB could serve as the autoantibody to help you diagnose Sjogren's disease. So SSB alone is uncommon. It occurs in about 2% of participants in the SICA registry, which is a large international registry of Sjogren's patients based at UCSF. Participants with SSA or SSA and SSB had overall greater disease activity than those who lacked SSA and SSB or had SSB alone. And ultimately, this led to the conclusion that SSB alone had no association with Sjogren's disease phenotypic features compared with those who lacked both antibodies. And so that finding is what led to the SSB alone being dropped from the diagnostic criteria. And I really don't, when I find this alone, I don't use it for the diagnosis of Sjogren's disease clinically. Whereas sometimes other combinations of clinical features and autoantibodies help me make a diagnosis in somebody who doesn't have an anti-SSA antibody. Another autoantibody of interest are the aquaporin antibodies. Patients with aquaporin antibodies have more severe dry eye compared with those who are negative, and this suggests a potential pathogenic role of these autoantibodies as well. And what do you make of these early Sjogren's profiles? So the early Sjogren's profile consists of several antibodies, and this includes a carbonic anhydrase antibody, salivary protein antiprotein antibodies. These antibodies were initially discovered in mice, and it was found that they precede Sjogren's onset in mice. And also it was found they occur earlier than SSA and SSB antibodies. But in humans, when we took a look at these antibodies, cross-sectionally, not longitudinally, we really found that they occur pretty similarly in, especially the IgG, pretty similarly in Sjogren's disease as controls. And because of these human studies, we've come to the conclusion that these antibodies should not be used for diagnosis. So let's pivot to the other end of the spectrum from the autoantibodies we've talked about. So how often can we expect to see truly seronegative patients with Sjogren's? And how do you approach evaluating these patients? Yeah, so what is seronegative? I think that's a good question. I think that you'll find different definitions in the literature because when I started my research and I really started spending a lot of time with Sjogren's patients, it was at that time the 2016 ACR ULAR criteria came out in which SSB was no longer part of the diagnostic criteria. And so I really define seronegative Sjogren's disease as Sjogren's that's SSA negative. And so among 
all Sjogren's disease patients, about 70%, 70-75% are going to be anti-SSA antibody positive. And the remaining 25 to 30% of Sjogren's disease patients are anti-SSA antibody negative. And these two groups differ, right? So SSA positive patients tend to have greater clinical and immunologic disease activity than SSA negative patients. So Having an SSA antibody seems to correlate with a greater SDI. Remember, that's the disease activity score we talked about. Low white count, hypocomplementemia, and cryoglobulinemia. And SSA-positive patients tend to have higher frequency of germinal centers, whereas SSA-negative patients have higher frequency of dry eye, greater tooth loss, greater neurologic and articular involvement. It seems to be clinically relevant to know you have an SSA-negative or seronegative Sjogren's disease patient. So how do we sort that out? And so in all of these cases, I recommend getting a salivary gland biopsy in a patient with features of Sjogren's disease but is seronegative. In addition to lab testing, I want to emphasize that to help differentiate dryness from, like for example, seronegative Sjogren's, we can also fall back to long-standing validated questions. So I actually start off the visit before I even get to the question of maybe this patient has seronegative Sjogren's and needs a biopsy or blood testing with some simple questions. And they're the following. One, do you have a recurrent sensation of sand or gravel in your eyes? Two, have you had daily, persistent, troublesome dry eye for more than three months? Three, do you use tear substitutes more than three times a day? Four, have you had a daily feeling of dry mouth for more than three months? Five, do you frequently drink liquids to aid in swallowing dry food like crackers? And six, have you had recurrent or persistent swollen salivary glands as an adult? And these taken individually have usually around an 80% sensitivity or specificity for a diagnosis of Sjogren's. And the most specific one would probably intuitively be the fact that they have persistent or recurrent swollen salivary glands. And so these are really nice screening tools to even help you determine if you're just starting to consider a diagnosis of Sjogren's, if they're dry enough to proceed with the rest of your evaluation. That's really helpful. Thank you. And to follow up on one small point from the last discussion, I'm curious. We know, for example, of rheumatoid arthritis, we've got good data that you know rheumatoid factors, CCP, tend to precede the onset of disease by 10 years, 20 years or so. Do we have any similar data in Sjogren's syndrome? Do we know at what time point we expect to see the SSA positive compared to onset of disease? Yeah, so it's pretty similar. So we know from large studies that SSA antibody tends to form years before diagnosis of Sjogren's. And so that's one of the reasons why we suspect maybe hormones are at play because you can get antibody status, if I recall, maybe 18 years prior to onset of disease, but it's really in that perimenopausal time period that you have disease onset. Interesting. Well, thank you so much. You know, with those final thoughts in mind, I want to thank my guests for helping us address this issue of diagnosis and Sjogren's disease. And Dr. McCoy, it was a great pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This industry podcast was sponsored by Novartis U.S. Clinical Development and Medical Affairs. If you missed any part of this discussion or to find others in this series, visit ReachMD.com slash Living Room. This is ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.